and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. In this week's episode, I talked with Christopher Lockheed. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you because Christopher's podcast, which is now called Follow Your Different, is the one that inspired the format of my own. Christopher talks about having a real dialogue and inspires his listeners to follow what makes them different and not just try to be better at whatever they think they're supposed to be doing. Christopher is a three-time Silicon Valley CMO, and he's the author of Play Bigger and, more recently, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different. I wanted to also give you a heads up that this episode is longer than most of them because Christopher and I had such a great time talking. So listen and let us know what you think. So I think, uh, you know, some of our guests may have heard of you and heard of your podcast or read uh, one of your books, um, Play Bigger and Niche Down, but not all of them will have. So I'd love to start with a little bit of background. Um, So uh, I'm super excited to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you got started working in tech and and what you do today? Yeah. Um, So I think my story is a lot like many entrepreneurs' story which is, uh, for me, entrepreneurship was not uh, a way up in the world, so to speak. I didn't graduate from Stanford with a ding-dong degree in engineering or entrepreneurship or an MBA or anything like that. Um, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. And, and so for me, entrepreneurship was a way out, not a way up. And, you know, a way out of a life of struggle and, and, and um, a life of sort of not uh, executing on your potential. And, you know, again, my story is a lot like a lot of entrepreneur story, I think, where um, for many of us, entrepreneurship is the path, particularly when um, nobody is willing to bet on your potential. And when nobody else will bet on you, which is translation, give you a job when you're a young person then you sort of have to bet on yourself. And so I started my first company at 18 uh, in the technology industry. The personal computer was just kind of exploding onto the scene at that time and uh, saw big opportunity there to help companies and people with PCs. And I've been in the technology industry um, for more than 30 years and ultimately ended up uh, selling another company that I had started to a, uh, I grew up in Canada. I was in Toronto um, when I started my second company and uh, ended up selling that company to a Silicon Valley based software company um, in the mid nineties. And um, so at 27 going on 28 years old, I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded uh, Silicon Valley software company and kind of never looked back since then. That's incredible. Um, so it sounds like you had a, a sort of a 10-year journey there from, oh, my God, who's going to give me a job? What am I going to do to make a living to, um, to being in Sil- Silicon Valley, you know, in uh, the first, um, the dot-com boom. So yes. tell me a little more. The dot-com boom. The dot-com okay. boom hadn't even quite started yet. Mm-hmm. That is so fascinating to me. I um, I love to hear stories about what was going on back then and everything. But um, but I'm sort of curious. Like um, 
I don't know. Not everybody that I know who does have struggles um, grows up somewhere. You know, my own, I'm in Washington Heights, which is a, a neighborhood where not everybody goes to college uh, and things like that. A lot of people that are in those situations, they don't, they don't go out and do something as crazy as start their own business. You know, somebody's telling them, well, if you can't get this job, you should, you know, clean or whatever. How did you end up doing that? I don't know if you remember that, um, that movie, Officer and a Gentleman. And there's a scene where Richard Gere, who is the lead in the, in the movie, they're going to throw him out of the Marine. I think it's the Marines. Um, mm-hmm. And his drill sergeant is yelling at him and saying, you're a bum and we're going to throw you out and, you know, all this stuff. And there's this famous scene in the movie where he yells back, I got no place else to go. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, look, I didn't have many options. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? So it's not like, oh, yeah, some some like altruistic thing it was like the question in my young life was for a long time was is christopher gonna make it Mm -hmm. Uh, school was very very challenging for me we can talk about why if you want um and oh am i allowed to swear how do you want me to talk on you yeah uh, this is a good question i'm actually okay with it um because i like people to be whoever they are so i know you swear um and i'm fine with you swearing on here okay you can talk about your dysphoclia. <laughs> yes. So I have dysphoclia, right? Dyslexia and dyscalculia and a whole bunch of these other things. Mm-hmm. And so, look, I, I was my mom and my mom, Jackie, had gotten me a job as an orderly in a hospital because she worked in a hospital as kind of a, uh, the, it was called a unit coordinator. But essentially, the, the secretary, the, the right hand, um, the right hand wo- woman of the head nurse was what my mom did for a living. And so. Um, through nepotism, she got me a job and, you know, my alternatives in life at the time when I was 18, after I got thrown out of school, I wanted to be a musician. I was in a band. We had had some success, but you know, bands are always hard and the drummer's always leaving and the bass player's always sleeping with the drummer's girlfriend and somebody's (laughs) always stealing your gear. And you know, there's just a bunch of dumb shit always going on when you're in a rock band. So I was doing that and working as an orderly and, you know, it's like, well, what the fuck is going on with my life here, right? I'm in this struggling band, and when I'm not doing that, I'm shaving guys nuts. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it just didn't look like a great road to be on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Yeah, You know, and so my, my buddy Jack, who's a great guy, and we're still good friends to this day, and I love him and his, his wife, and he's got two awesome kids who all call me Uncle Chris, and he was working for a small software company. He said, hey, what if we start a company doing uh, technology training and consulting and custom programming? And, and, and so it was a path, you know, it was, it was, it was a way out. It was, it, was, it, it, it was a game worth playing. It was like, well, it's really, I could stay in this dead end situation and just keep, you know, spinning my wheels and chasing my tail or whatever analogy you want to use, Holly, mm-hmm. or I can try to build something. And so Jack and I set out on our own and I never really looked back. I had this very, I made a very big decision just before that, when I was about 17 years old, that I was going to go for it in life, that I wasn't going to be a bum, uh, that, um, yeah, I sort of had a moment of reckoning with myself. And so uh, entrepreneurship was the path that made sense because um, it didn't matter that, you know, I had no education, no relationships, no money or no experience. Mm -hmm. You could just start doing stuff and 
if you could close a sale and then deliver on that sale and make that customer happy, then you could, they would buy more and they might refer you to another customer and, and you could just get into business. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's what I did because, um, it was exciting and it was new and it was, and it looked like a better option for getting the rent handled. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what were you sort of, what was your role? What were you doing, uh, in those early days? What, what skills were you building? Yeah. So of course I didn't show up with many skills, right? Um, my friend Jack said, look, Jack, you know, he said, I'll handle the technical stuff, you know, cause he had more of an inclination to that background. He was already teaching and he had learned some of the basic um, uh, PC technologies applications that were uh, prevalent at the time. And it's like, so I'll handle sort of the technical side of the house and you handle the sales and marketing side of the house. And, you know, we'll meet in the middle and, um, you know, we'll go from there. And, you know, that's essentially what we did. So when I started, I had a um, a personal computer that I had purchased with uh, orderly money, um, a, a phone. We had a small desk in a uh, or a small office in an incubator space. And uh, and how I started was with this ancient document that was the source of much revenue for many uh, small entrepreneurs. And that ancient document, the ancient uh, uh, scrolls, is called the Yellow Pages. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and if a company had a big ad in the yellow pages, like a three quarter page ad or a full page ad, I figure, well, they must have some money because they're spending money on this yellow mm-hmm. pages ad. So maybe, you know, maybe we could sell them. And I, uh, I would cold call just like any other telemarketer or salesperson. Mm-hmm. How long did you do that for? So, uh, let's see. Well, I guess the, the, we called the company Roger Pierce or Roger Pierce. And I guess Roger Pierce lasted about three years mm-hmm. and we did very well for a while. And then we, you know, we, um, you know, we had huge clients like, you know, Air Canada was a client and a couple of the big banks and, you know, we got, we got some pretty good names and, um, but we didn't know shit about running a business. And so we ran the thing into the ground. Mm-hmm. And um, and then so three years in, yes, eighteen to twenty-one. Yeah, at about twenty-one, uh, we had wrapped the uh, the Mustang around the lamppost, mm-hmm. and you know, as it, as revenue went up into the right, expenses went up into the right faster, and we did a bunch of dumb things and hired a bunch of dumb people and screwed up a bunch of jobs with clients and you know the things that you do when you don't have any idea what you're doing. <laughs> and so um, at 21 years old, I found myself uh, in debt and we had to shut the business down and um, I had to go get a job. And I was terrified about that. I was brand new, brand new, newly married at the time and, uh, you know, was shitting myself. But luckily, and, you know, this is a lesson that I've carried ever since then. You know, first of all, it's never dark as it seems to be in the moment, right? In the moment, mm-hmm. it seems. You know, and I'm, I'm somebody who's somewhere on the bipolar spectrum. So, you know, I can, I can get the dark fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Fuck. Anyway, uh. so, but I had built relationships and, and, and a little bit of a reputation, I guess, and maybe a little bit of respect. And so another entrepreneur who um, we had collaborated on some, some stuff with, uh, I had called him, his name was Bill Walker. And I said, you know, Hey Bill, we're going to shut the business. We kind of fucked the thing up. And, and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I don't know. I got to get a job. I'm pretty worried about it, actually. And he said, well, I'm starting another company. 
Mm-hmm. Would you come and help me start this company? And it was a software distribution business. And again, the PC was really, you know, in its early explosion days and he was distributing a business PC software. And so I ended up joining the company as kind of the original sales uh, guy. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I was back in the startup game, even though it wasn't my startup. And, you know, that company ultimately ended up doing very well. And we had a great time building that company. And then that led to the next thing and the next thing. And ultimately, um, I created another company, which I ultimately sold to a Silicon Valley software company. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's like, I, I have, I have never gotten any job or uh, uh, any kind of thing that you would call work in my professional life through a headhunter. It's all been through relationships. It's all been through building a network. It's all been through building a reputation. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, you know, in the beginning, nobody was going to bet on my potential. At that point, even though I had fucked up, um, I had demonstrated enough capabilities in enough areas where an older entrepreneur saw something in me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Roger Pierce, my first company was, you know, was, was my, uh, it was my MBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the companies that came after, um, I imagine you took some of your learnings with you. When, um, I guess the one that sold to a Silicon Valley company, tell us more about that one. What, what was that company doing and um, was it uh, growing a lot and what was that like? Yeah, it was growing like crazy. Um, it was a small boutique uh, consulting company called Always an Adventure. And... Um, yeah, isn't it always an adventure? Isn't it is, it? yes. <laughs> uh, I've always liked fun company names. Anyway, um, what I had seen was that this new technology, not just the PC, but at the time this thing called client server, which was sort of, uh, for lack of a better description, you know, networking around this new technology. So at the time, in the corporate world, the mainframe was the big technology and then the mini computer emerged and then of course the personal computer emerged and then client server technology was the technology that really had in the corporate world the personal computer explode Mm -hmm. and so as that i saw that happening it first started to happen in custom development and then there were companies building off-the-shelf applications for uh accounting and manufacturing and things along those lines and that sort of was the birth of companies like Oracle and SAP and, and all that, they rode the client server wave mm-hmm. um, or, and, and frankly, in fairness to them, they helped create the client server category. And so it just became very clear to me that this technology was ultimately going to come to um, a world that I loved, which is sales and marketing. And mm-hmm. so I proactively positioned myself as today we would call it an influencer, but as a thought leader, guru, consultant, uh, author guy in mm-hmm. uh, what in the very beginning was called Salesforce Automation. Of course, today is called CRM. Mm-hmm. And so I became one of the early gurus in that space. I would speak at all the big conferences and, and that kind of stuff. And, um, and I had a very small team behind me. And uh, ultimately, the company that I sold to was a company called Vantive. And they were a, an early pioneer in client server CRM. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, how I was able to catapult myself to uh, to Silicon Valley. And, and that was my first um, CMO gig at a public company. Yeah. 
Wow. So when you joined Vantive and then you, you were working as a CMO there, so a lot of our listeners are in the field of product management. And yeah. um, I like to kind of paint a bit of a story about how this came to be and how it is what it is today. And so I'm curious, at, at that point in time in the tech industry, at a company like Vantive, did they have product managers? Did you work with any? Where- yeah, absolutely. It was a whole, um, and it has been my whole career. It's been mm-hmm. uh, um, a whole discipline. And in most technology companies, there are sort of two sides of this coin. There's product marketing mm-hmm. and product management. And then, of course, there's engineering where we actually build the products themselves. And so, mm-hmm. and, and the bigger the company, the more sophisticated that structure is. But product marketing being sort of a outward bound um, activity, customer facing, analyst facing, and then get feedback from the market talking with working closely with product management whose job is more um, uh, getting an input from the category from customers from the market typically through product marketing into product management and product management ultimately is responsible for things like um, uh, marketing requirements documents MRDs PRDs product requirements documents and sort of so the, the, the product management folks typically doing the what should we build next and sort of what's our roadmap to do that and then mm-hmm. working with engineering to execute on that. So um, in, mo- in every company I've ever been associated with of any, of any size, when it's a startup, it's different, of course. But once a company gets to some kind of uh, you know, size, certainly 100 people, 50, even 50 people, you begin to see a um, delineation of responsibilities between product marketing and marketing and then product marketing and product management and engineering. Yeah. And were you seeing, um, I guess I'm curious about what the working relationship was like. Uh, Cause I, I, I certainly have stories about, you know, best and worst relationships with marketing between marketing and product. Um, what was, what was it like for you there? Yeah. So um, if you look at marketing, typically uh, sales hates marketing and vice versa. And typically products, um, which can encompass product marketing and management, sometimes product marketing is in marketing and product management and engineering, you know, d- depends on the company. But typically sales hates marketing and vice versa and marketing hates the products group and or the engineering group and vice versa, right? So that's where the mutual hate society exists. So over time, I became wiser and wiser as a CMO and I, I realized, you know, of course, all that's dumb, Right. The Mm -hmm. enemy's outside. It's not inside. All that's complete stupidity. And so to answer your question, um, uh, I could tell you what what I did on the sales side, if you, if it, if it matters, but on the product side, what I did was, first of all, I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. I love sitting there with engineers talking about on product managers and marketers and the whole products organization from tip to tail talking about where we're weak, where we're strong, what we should build next. If we had this, we could really crush this competitor. Um, if we if we develop this capability, we could really redesign how people think about this category, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so I've always loved being part of the product cycle. And so um, what I started to do was swap jobs with the head of engineering. Oh, and so twice a year, I would, quote unquote, run engineering and 
twice a year, the head of engineering would quote unquote run marketing. And then we would compare notes and I would meet with all of his direct reports and take all of his meetings and vice versa. Um, and so I did ever. So when, by doing that, it sent, it sent an even more powerful signal than I ever could have imagined Holly to both mm-hmm. the products organization and the marketing organization that, Hey, these two executives uh, respect and admire each other and work very closely together. They would never be doing this if they didn't, if they mm-hmm. you know, they'd never swap jobs, if they didn't. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, and this blew me away um, when that was happening, th- those, those job swaps, not only did of course the marketing and engineering organizations know what was going on over time. Cause we did it consistently. The whole company knew. Mm-hmm. Not only that it happened, but they would typically know when it was going on. Yeah. And so um, that uh, sort of symbolic gesture was incredibly power in of itself. And then my behavior as a CMO always, when I heard anybody internally bitching about another organization, I would mm-hmm. stop them. Mm-hmm. And say, well, have you gone and talked to so-and-so about that? Nah, you know, those guys are assholes. They don't get it. Oh, yeah? Fuck you. You don't get to call them assholes unless you go and talk to them about it. The Mm -hmm. enemy is not finance, engineering, you know, sales, whatever. The enemy is outside. The enemy is the competition. The enemy Mm -hmm. is the the delta between where we are and where we want to be. And I I was just never an executive that tolerated. I I was a company executive who happened to be running marketing. I wasn't some idiot who would defend marketing at all costs against mm-hmm. all the other departments. I wasn't against anybody internally. It's like the political debate in our country, you know, Republicans against Democrats. I, I'm not against anybody. I'm for the United States of America. And when mm-hmm. Democrats do dumb shit I, that I disagree with, I say they're doing dumb shit. And when Republicans do dumb shit, I say they're doing dumb shit. And I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not. And so I did that as an executive. And so I think that mindset, and behavior that is congruent with that really changes behavior. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. I've never heard anybody tell me that they swapped roles with somebody um, that they needed to be a partner with. And um, I'm, I'm just thinking, of course you would say that because you were telling me at the beginning of this, no one thinks about the paradigm of interviews and, you know, they don't think about this paradigm and that paradigm seems like, uh, you know, you'd be the person to have done that. But I'm super curious. Like, how did you even come up with that idea? Um, it, it came in a couple of ways. Number one, um, other than marketing, the things that I really love to do, I, I love product strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love being with engineers who are, you know, particularly Legend, you know, I love legendary engineers who are creative and thoughtful and, you yes. know, and sit down with three really legendary engineers and brainstorm a couple of big ideas. And if they get into it, you know, they'll go to work and 12 hours later, uh, after a bunch of Red Bulls and pizzas, they'll like have a working prototype and they'll come into your office and go, hey, man, remember that thing we talked about two days ago? Look at this. And you'll be like, holy fuck, you know, that. So being part of that process with, deeply committed, super creative, super thoughtful product folks, whether they're marketing management or engineers directly or developers, however you want to think about it. I love that. And I'm a creative guy. And I, and so I always loved that. And I, and I wanted our marketers to feel connected in that way to the the folks on the product side. 
Um, so that was sort of very natural, um, very natural thing for me. And then the other area of, uh, tremendous joy for me is I love selling and I love sale. I love salespeople. There's no harder job in a company than sales. I don't give a shit what anyone says. And so as a CMO, I spent half my time in the field. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I always, when I was a CMO, I always knew, on a personal basis, the top 10% of our sales force. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. my goal was always to be the number one most requested executive on a sales call. Mm. And I traveled like a madman and, you know, was sort of the, the, the executive uh, or certainly one of the executives who was a key part of a lot of the corporate visits when customers came to see us. And so, I just think you have to be that kind of an engaged, committed executive. And the thing I learned over time, and by the time I got to my third CMO job, it had become very clear to me. Um, my personal belief, Holly, is the most legendary companies, the top you know, six or eight executives in the company are all in each other's business. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be. So, you know, when the head of sales wanted to talk about, you know, his top folks and who he should promote or a problem he was having with somebody or whatever it was, like I was engaged with the sales force. I could engage in that conversation with him. Mm -hmm. um, and I also didn't, I also had no issues. As a matter of fact, I, I, again, I welcomed it having other executives get up inside the marketing organization. Yeah. You know, so, so, uh, we would do these huge user conferences that are, that are pretty typical in the tech industry with thousands of people. And, you know, the head of sales and regional sales executives would want to meet with on a periodic basis. Our events team to talk about how it was going. It was a giant area of investment for the company, you know, well, you know, several millions of dollars a year and how we were, you know, how we were, providing incentives for the sales force to get customers to come and what we were doing with, you know, whatever it was. Right. And so I never gave a shit. I'll never forget. I hired a new head of corporate marketing who had events rolling up to her. And in her first couple of weeks on the job, she got a meeting invite from the head of sales who wanted to sit down and talk to her about some of this stuff and field marketing and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And she came to me and she said, Hey, Christopher, you know, I got this meeting from meeting maker from Jay and he wants to talk about all these things and you're not on the meeting invite. What should I do? Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean? What should you do? And she said, well, you know, I don't want to break the chain of command. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And I said, well, I don't give a fuck about the chain of command. Go If you, if Jay is requesting to meet with you, then meet with them. And if you and Jay think it makes sense to have me in the meeting, by all means, but if I don't have to be in the meeting, hallelujah. <laughs> yes. Right? Uh -huh. and just, hey, when you're going to meet with Jay, you better have your shit together because he's a serious executive. And so, you know, I, I learned that over time that legendary companies operate that way. And I think it's very healthy to, um, quote unquote, be up in each other's sh shorts or in each other's business. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, I, I never uh, had investor relations reporting to me directly, mm -hmm. but. The CFO and I deeply, deeply partnered on IR and the head, mm -hmm. the VP of IR worked as closely with me on earnings announcements or acquisition announcements or any big strategic thing, any big strategic communication 
the head of IR, investor relations, and the head of PR, and the CFO, and, and myself would work closely together on these things. And I didn't give a shit who worked for who. You know that, all that stupidity around the org, getting all wrapped around the that's all dumb. Mm-hmm. What's smart is how do we get our best people working on an initiative to produce a legendary outcome? And by definition, if it's, if it's something that's going to move, move the company forward in a material way, it will be cross-functional in nature. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can, quote unquote, stay in your swim lane in a company of any size and get something done just in the marketing organization, just in the product organization, just in the finance. It's going to be cross-functional. And yep. so our ability to work with teams of people in a cross-functional way many of whom don't necessarily report up into us as an executive in a lot of ways is your, is your a function is really the harbinger of how successful you can be. And as an executive, I wanted to be the guy that, you know, the, the finance team wanted to get my advice on something or, or the products team or the sales team or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. I love that vision and that, that approach. Um, I'm always, uh, coaching people to do, you know, collaborative, like bring stakeholders in, find the smart people who know the, know about this thing, you know, and work with them. It doesn't matter what their title is. Um, One of the things that you mentioned along the way that I want to dive deeper into is product strategy. And specifically, I want to hear more about category design. So how did you, how did you, you know, come to, come to care so deeply about it and, um, and tell us, tell us how you describe it. Well, I think, look, I think most of us love great products. Right. So if you think yes. about yourself, you think, you know, I don't know if you have a car you love or a piece of technology you love or but, you know, or an umbrella you love or, I, you know, whatever it is. Right. Uh, we all have certain products in our lives that we, for whatever reason, really love. And even, you know, e- even though I don't walk around all day thinking, oh, I love my iPhone, you know, but I do every once in a while have a moment with it and go, holy fuck, man. This is the Star Trek communicator. Like yes. this thing's incredible. Like if mm-hmm. you just take a sec and go, just just stop. We have awesome shit right now, right? There's <laughs> yes. amazing, there's amazing shit going on all the time, right? And the future is on us in a very real way. You know, the, a little girl with a 3D printed arm threw out the first pitch at a San Francisco Giants baseball game this year. Wow, a little girl with a 3D printed arm. Yeah, that's happening now. And so yeah. and look at what you and I are doing. Right. Holly mm-hmm. started a media company from her house. Mm-hmm. That's made possible because of Zoom and because of, you know, all the podcast players, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and and Blueberry and Libsyn. And I don't know, you know, whichever ones you use. But, you know, and, and there's, so so the reality is, um, I think we all love great products. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you take a step, when, when you have a piece of, you know, some kind of product that you love, it's, you know, I, I, I've been wearing the same boots for 20 something years. I love those fucking John Parfredo's boots, right? You can bury me. <laughs> yes. in them. Mm-hmm. I, maybe you have a jacket. You feel that I have a, I have a Patagonia jacket that I've, that's like that for me. It's been on all my backcountry trips and they make a more advanced one with better this and that. I don't give a shit. That's my love. My Patagonia, you know? So anyway, I, I think it starts there. And then the other big aha for me sort of centers around two things. Um, 
The first one is on the product side, what most people get um, drawn into is um, product in- incrementalism. And yes. there's a role for product in- incrementalism. When you have an existing customer base and you have a product that they use and you're looking to come out with a new version or whatever it is, asking those customers, hey, what works and what doesn't work and doing you know, focus groups and survey monkeys and user groups and whatever, whatever it is you do to kind of hang out with customers to learn what they love and what they don't love and what they want more of and what they want less of and da-da-da-da-da. That's, that's important shit. Now, it is incremental. But it's important. However, that said, it gets very easy. And I found typically the bigger the company, the more easy this happens. To just get lulled into that's what we do in products now. Yep. And even worse than that, we don't apply a, a lot of thinking. What we do apply is essentially some kind of scoring system. You know, we ask mm-hmm. 2,000 customers, what do you think about X? And if um, 800 of them vote that we should do this and 300 of them vote that we should do that and like da, 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 then we do what the 800 said. Yep. Now look, there are certain things that that is a very smart thing to uh, do and listen to and be a, a, a guidepost on what product slash engineering um, should go, do. But make no mistake, that is incrementalism the 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 likelihood of that yielding a breakthrough is almost zero yeah however there are many big companies that get get sucked into that and that's really all they do and so my area uh you know i I can add a little bit of value there but not really my Mm -hmm. area of value is um what are we going to do that is a massive leap forward. So my whole life is focused on the exponential, not the incremental. Yep. So that's the first piece. The second piece to answer your question is I had this aha plus or minus midway through my career. And when I had this, when I learned this, um, a lot of things started to make sense to me. And that is, and I learned this from psychologists. Um, most people are what are called, um, bottom-up thinkers and they live in a world of detail and for them to see a big picture so to speak they need to see all the piece parts come together much like how you put together a puzzle Mm -hmm. and so when you can granularize things when you can atomize things and then show people how these these pieces fit together then they get the big picture and sort of that's how they work and a lot of people work on um, components of things Yep. So if you're working on a car, maybe you're the axle gal and that's, or maybe you're the inner part of the axle, I, you know, I, whatever it is. Right. And that's so why we call work, them cogs in the machine. <laughs> yeah. They work on their piece. Right. And yep. that can be very, very important. Um, yep. And I don't mean, I don't mean bottom up thinker in any way, uh, in any kind of a pejorative way, Holly. Mm-hmm. And the aha for me is a, what psychologists and researchers have told me is that's how the vast majority of people think. And the more sort of engineering oriented they are, the more likely they are to think that way. It's not always true, of course, but tends to be the case. I'm what's called a um, top-down thinker. 
And I'm also someone who has no respect for incumbency. Yep. I have no respect for the way that it is. As a matter of fact, when you tell me it's a certain way, my brain goes to, well, fuck that, or that's dumb, or why is it that way, or or couldn't it be something different, or why did we think about it that way, or how isn't there a new way to think about this part? Like I just don't, I just reject the rules, reject the way it is, reject incumbency, reject mm-hmm. history and legacy, and go to the way it could be or the way it should be. And of course, I'm not always right, but that's the conversation I like to have. And so. What I learned for myself over time with product-oriented folks was there were some people in the product organization who were very much like that. And in the Mm -hmm. technology world, often you find those types of individuals who are more like what what are called CTOs, chief technology officers, where they're sort of dreaming and scheming about the future, which then influences the present and the product roadmap over time. Um, So I'm more of that dreamer and schemer. And so what I learned is if I could bring that skill set that I have um, to a great engineering organization that it tends to be more incremental, then I could be a real resource in, in looking at uh, helping them look at things that are exponential. And then with the folks that were working on exponential things, you know, I might have questions that they didn't think about. I might have a different angle on the problem that maybe they didn't think about. Um, mm-hmm. Or even if I didn't, they would educate me on this exponential idea that they'd have. And then I'd start to think about, okay, so um, how's that going to work from a category design perspective, from a marketing perspective? How Mm -hmm. could we, how could we take this idea, make it 10 times bigger, make the world get it. Um, So I, I, not only did I like to create and or contribute to the exponential ideas, but with the exponential ideas that, um, you know, maybe I didn't have much to create or co-create or contribute, but I would still get excited about them. And then I'd start to think about, okay, how do we make this idea? Let's, you know, I fell in love with the idea. How do we make this idea work in the world at scale such Mm -hmm. that we gain an unfair competitive advantage? So all of those conversations are conversations that I, uh, as a CMO love to be in. And today as an investor and advisor, I'm in that conversation a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think that those are a lot of the things that uh, my listeners and I talk about, um, you know, the 10x, not 10%. Like, how do, how do we drive that big growth and, and get out of the optimization mindset? Um, and I, I really like the framework that you have um, from Play Bigger. Uh, I'm curious to hear, you know, sort of how do you, how do you um, describe that to someone who hasn't heard of it before? So uh, where I would start is just the simple aha that for some people is just on its face is a radical idea. And the simple aha goes like this. Uh, You can design a company. What's our business model going to be? Where are we going to be? You know, how are we going to structure that? Are we going to do engineering in, in Utah and manufacturing in, you know, wherever, and are we going to be multinational? You know, so you think about, in the biggest sense, you could think about company design, structure, the whole thing, right? Cap, cap structure, raising money, all of it. So companies get mm-hmm. designed. Yep. Obviously, products get designed, right? And there's been mm-hmm. a big breakthrough um, in a lot of ways because of the, the legendary folks at IDEO have created a lexicon, a set of thinking and a set of approaches around this thing they call design 
thinking. Yep. Right. And then there's lots in, and I assume it's in different industries as well, but in the technology industry, there's a lot of uh, education and best practices around product management and how you do it effectively. And so, so there's a lot of thinking around, you know, product design in one way or another. And then of course, um, uh, what are the right development methodologies to get there? In the old days, mm-hmm. we would talk about waterfall uh, methodologies for building software. Today, you know, we talk about lean startups. Today, we talk about agile development. And so, you know, different approaches. But th- that all exists. And I would put all that under a giant banner called product design. Mm-hmm. Well, the aha is market categories are designed too. Mm-hmm. Sometimes by accident, sometimes intentionally, but categories get designed. And the simple aha goes like this. If you take a step back and you start thinking about categories and how they get designed, you'll start to see category design everywhere. A simple example Mm -hmm. I love is uh, a pair of high-end sunglasses cost how much? Gosh, I don't know. I've never bought any. (laughs) Well, if you go buy a pair of Maui gyms, you're going to spend between 250 to maybe 400 bucks. Okay. Uh, or Ray-Bans or something like that, the high-end ones. And then you and I can go to Costco today, or God forbid, Walmart, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and buy a good-sized, good-quality, flat-screen TV for 150 to 200 bucks. Wow. So let's just call it 200 bucks for the TV and 400 bucks for the sunglasses. So you look at that and you go, what? Yeah. How can that be true? One is a piece of plastic sitting on your nose, albeit, you know, a great piece of plastic, but that's what it is. And one of them is a marvel of technology that talks to satellites. Yep. And if you didn't know any better, you go, well, the category that is the more expensive one must be the marvel of technology that talks to satellites. And yet, of course, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so why is that? And the answer to why it is that way is because the category got designed that way. That is to say, somebody taught the world how to think about a problem and a solution in a very particular way. And the value associated with solving that problem articulated in that way. And so we have these, um, the, these sort of uh, value associations that we make based on the way we've been educated to think. And we get yep. educated to think via this mechanism called a point of view because somebody educates us. They tell us things in a particular way. And, and from a category design perspective, that way of communicating with people about a problem and a solution is called a POV or a point of view. And so, so the aha is, Somebody taught the world to think about a problem and a solution in a very particular way. That's why it costs what it costs. And then there's very clear dynamics that happen in categories we can talk about if you like, Holly. Mm-hmm. But, but the first big aha is that legendary innovators, legendary entrepreneurs do not compete in an as-is category. They teach the world to think about a problem and a solution in exactly the way they want the world to think. And when the world agrees with them, bam, that's yep. where you get Google. 
That's where you get um, Goldie Blocks, the first STEM toys for girls. That's yes, where you- I have that in my house right now. Do you? Are they around? <laughs> I, do. I do. Well, yeah. Uh, so we have the uh, the movie machine. Got it for my daughter's fifth birthday. She really enjoyed it. Wow. Well, Debbie Sterling, who I don't know, who's the founder of Goldie Blocks, is one of my heroes because Mm -hmm. everybody told her in the toy industry, nobody's going to buy STEM toys for girls. And she said, oh, yeah, she, you know, to quote the Big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. And she proved them all (laughs) wrong. Yes, I'm so glad for that. As am I. I mean, that's the other thing about category design is in the beginning, uh, most people go, this is never going to fly. Mm-hmm. And then when it works, everybody goes, well, duh, of course. You know, if you look at Netflix today, well, yep. of course you don't drive to a fucking blockbuster and return a movie and pay a late fee. And they probably don't even have the movie you want next. And, it, you know, there's a sweaty city kid behind the counter. And like, if you just sort of think about driving to a video store and what that used to be like, that everything about that sucks. But at the time, <laughs> That was a solution to a problem, and Blockbuster was, you know, one of the greatest um, startups in American history at the time. And today, you would never want to do that, A. And B, it's like, well, of course you would go to a website and you would deal with this digitally. Yep. But when Reed Hastings started Netflix in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was not an of course. That was not an obvious thing, right? And so yep. that's the other thing about legendary category designers is they take something that in the beginning is a head scratcher and then they make it and of course airbnb is another great example right in the beginning Mm -hmm. who the hell is going to want to rent their couch or even worse stay on somebody's couch and now uh if i'm not mistaken they're the most valuable hospitality company on the planet right so (laughs) as, as spinal tap so famously said there's a fine line between clever and stupid Right. Airbnb mm-hmm. looked like a very stupid idea. And m- almost everybody in Silicon Valley told them to go get fucked. Yep. Um, and then Sequoia backed them and Brian Chesney executed and the rest is history. And, and, and look, you can do that at scale like those companies or, you know, one of my other favorites that I love. We talk about them in niche down is these two gals um, who started a bakery mm-hmm. and because they were thoughtful about category design. There's now 250 franchises of them, and most bakeries fail. And that bakery is called Nothing Bunt Cake. Right. Because yes. they niche down on bunt cakes. Mm-hmm. And there's over 250 franchises in the United States and maybe beyond. I don't know. I haven't checked recently. So my point is, if you and I just start a bakery and it's called Holly and Christopher's Bakery, you know, maybe we'll be successful. Maybe we won't. Chances are we won't if you look at the statistics. Yep. Uh, and if we think we're just going to make it to get back to, you know, where we started this conversation, if we think, oh, well, you know, we'll, 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 get, we'll get good company design. We'll have a good location, we'll paint the place, keep it nice and clean. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll have good prices, you know, et cetera. And then we'll have good product design. We're going to bake awesome cookies and shit and whatever it is we're going to bake. Mm-hmm. And we're going to hope that by having good company design and good category design, or excuse me, and good product design, the world will taste our products and everything's just going to work out. Well, that may or may not work. Uh, in, in, in most cases, it actually doesn't work. Yep. In some cases, it does. But then when you go that extra step to say, hey, listen, 
we're going to design our own category. You know, in the case of nothing but cake, we're going to niche down hard on this one type of cake. Yep. And they did that. And of course, now the rest is history. And so my point is the legendary entrepreneurs, the legendary innovators don't rely on the product to speak for itself. Yes. They do all three things, product, company, and category design. We call it prosecute the magic triangle. Mm-hmm. I prosecute that magic triangle. If you're, if you get it right, it's a game changer. And then you take two thirds of the economics. That's the other part of it. And we can talk about how that works and the research behind that if you like, but, um, yeah, I actually, um, I love, I love to get into the data and I've actually used your, um, your data on that before in some of my, uh, talks, um, on, you know, the category King and what they take. So tell us a little more about, about what that looks like. Yeah. So, um, uh, the interesting thing for we did it for Playbigger and God bless them. The folks at the Harvard Business Review uh, actually published an article based on this research. And just as a side note, as a you know, as a guy that's been a CMO and been responsible for PR for the better part of thirty years of my life, I've never had a um, a, a media uh, a media company shove a thermometer so far up my butt uh, <laughs> as as HBR when you are presenting data in the Harvard Business Review, mm-hmm. do a lot to make sure that you're not full of shit and that your data is real. Anyway, yeah. um, we discovered this, this, this thing, which is essentially that um, in the tech business, one company takes um, 76% on average of all of the value created in the category. So, for for Play Bigger, my first book, we built a big data store of every venture-backed technology company created in the United States from 2000 to 2015. And we got a hold of the, the best data possible around how those companies grew in value. That is to say, when they were private, how their valuations increased over time. And of course, once they're public, valuation turns into market cap and it's very easy to track. Mm-hmm. And um, in specific, what we wanted to do, Holly, is is get um, not data on market share, although market share is important. Mm-hmm. My belief is the number one goal of an executive entrepreneur, the executive team, is to create enduring, sustainable value as measured by what's the value of this company? What's the worth of this company, market cap or valuation? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not profitability. It's not revenue. It's not cash. Those things are all important, but they're in support of, are we building a valuable company or not? Yep. So with all that said, we want to understand how, how in it, as, as categories develop and there's, there's players that emerge into these new spaces, what percentage of, if you take all the companies in any given category and you add up their valuation and or market cap, what percentage goes to the leader or what you could think of as the category queen or category king. Mm-hmm. And that number in the tech industry is 76%. Yeah, that's humongous. And is that, um, I imagine I'm, I'm probably not the only person that has spent so much in the tech industry. We're not still aware of the others. Is, is that pretty unusual? So I don't have data on other industries like I do on the tech industry. <clears throat> so this is what I just shared with you is, is, is HBR data. Uh, mm-hmm. HBR validated data. What I will tell you more uh, sort of anecdotally um, is 
that dynamic is playing out in industry after industry after industry. And it's playing out in the consumer space. So a good buddy of mine is a guy named Eddie Yoon. And yeah, Eddie, I just listened to that did episode you? with him. Yeah, did it was you really good. It? I sure did. Yeah. Isn't he awesome? He is awesome. And the last time you had him on, I really enjoyed that one too. So I started yeah, following him. I want him, him on on yeah. a regular basis. I think he should have his own podcast, but he doesn't appear to be doing that. So I'm just <laughs> going to have him on mine on a regular basis. Cause well, there you go. I like, I like people with giant brains who are interesting and fun. Um, and so Eddie is the category growth guru to the Fortune 100. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Super Consumers, published by Harvard Business Press. He's been, written, he's been writing for HBR for quite some time. You saw we just wrote that article together, which was a blast. Hopefully, we're going to write a couple more. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what he tells me, and he works with big consumer brands, you know, so... Yeah. I don't want to name names, but, you know, if a big potato chip manufacturer wants to do something to produce a great breakthrough in growth, they call Eddie or a big, uh, you know, drinks company or a big, mm-hmm. uh, 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 he, he's working with a company right now um, that I'm helping him a little bit with in the, let's just call it the beauty space. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's that guy, right? Yep. And what he tells me is the, that dynamic where one company gets plus or minus two-thirds of the economics is playing out in space after space after space. Okay. And it's predicated on two insights. One is uh, human dynamics. Yep. You and I as human beings are pack animals. <laughs> yes. And so every purchaser of Spanx makes every non-purchaser of Spanx think about and feel more comfortable with, well, maybe I should buy some Spanx too. Because yep. we're pack animals. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want to stand out because it's the person that, you know, is over here by themselves away from the pack that gets eaten by the lion, right? And so it's sort of a primordial mm-hmm. thing, right? And so, so we feel, you know, think about it. When you buy a car, you don't want to buy some exotic car that nobody ever heard of that you can't get serviced anywhere. You want to buy a good car, that you could go to the dealer, you know, buy a Honda that you go to the, and there's lots of Honda dealers. So we feel good about that. And if we can't make it to a Honda dealer, well, we could probably go to Jiffy Lube and they're going to be able to do an oil change. But if you bought some car that you can't have that kind of simple service with, um, you're going to feel less comfortable, right? So, so the more people that do X, the more people are attracted to and or comfortable doing X. So that's just a human primordial reality uh, of why category uh, queens and kings um, exist. Um, and then, of course, once the category queen starts to emerge, she gets so much more category power than anyone else because mm-hmm. she knows more about the market. She knows more about the customers. She's defeating more competitors more uh, more often, et cetera. And so it starts this, if you will, virtuous circle that makes it very, very hard. So for, you know, if you think about uh, if you wanted to start a doll company to compete with American girl, well, Mm -hmm. that'd be really hard because they're like so far ahead as the category queen in that space that, you know, if you started USA girl, um, you know, here's what everybody does. Um, Do you remember uh, something about Mary? Yes. Right. It's that seven minute abs discussion. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a scene in the movie where Stiller picks up this crazed hitchhiker played by a comedian named Harlan Williams. Mm-hmm. Remember this? I do. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, he's like, let's do, you know, six minute, five minute, etc. Yeah, he said, you know, what's your strategy for success in life? And the Harlan character says, well, you know, that commercial eight minute abs, I'm going to do seven minute abs. Mm-hmm. And Stiller says, yeah, well, what do you, that's great, but what are you, what are you going to do when somebody comes out with six minute abs? Yep. And everybody, everybody, most people in business are doing six minute abs. That is to say they're caught in a trap of mindless, stupid competition that ultimately just erodes margins Mm -hmm. because they don't have any real differentiation. And so legends don't do that. They don't play seven minute abs and, and they're trying not to get into a competitive discussion. This is where the distinction between I'm going to compete with my better product, which is what the vast majority of people do, versus I'm going to compete with my different product. Mm-hmm. So if I say to you, hey, Holly, what do you feel like for dinner tonight? Mexican or sushi? I'm forcing a choice. Mm-hmm. If I say to you, oh, what do you feel like, sushi or sashimi? Now, well, you know, it's on the margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And so legends force a choice. Legends differentiate by being yep. different. Legends want everyone that comes after them to be compared to them, not them to be compared to others. And so you have to find a way to niche down and stand out around something that is, if you will, an exponential different as opposed to what most people do, which is compete on a bunch of incremental betters. Yeah, I uh, I love that. I personally um, I read uh, Niche Down last year, and um, yeah, thank you for writing it. Um, and it really helped me. Uh, last year was my second year of business as a, uh, a, a more or less a solopreneur, a coach, consultant, trainer, etc. And um, reading Niche Down helped me sort of like. <laughs> take ownership of my difference, you know, think about that and, and kind of filter out the noise of the people who say, well, shouldn't you be like this and like that and like that. And uh, now I'm, I'm easier. It's easier for me now to come back and be like, no, because that's not me. This is my difference. This is my value. This is what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and, you know, I think that's the biggest gift one can give you oneself, right. Is to figure out, okay, so what is it that makes you different? Mm-hmm. You follow your different. What is it that makes you unique? And then, most importantly, tie that different to a problem that matters. Yep. And then, when you have, when you can articulate all that in a simple point of view, that is, then the world understands. Okay, um, this is why Holly's different, and this is why that different matters. And I have a choice between her and something else. I'm not looking at her as just another, you know, one of the 20 billion coaches in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so. You stand out in that way. We become known for a niche that we can own, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you for writing that because it, it really helped me. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And thank you for saying that because when you write the kinds of books that I have written, the reason you write them is you hope that one day you're on a podcast with Holly and she says that she appreciated the books. <laughs> No, yes. really. Yeah, That's no. That's what you yes. dream of. You, you, yes. you, you know, in the case of uh, Play Bigger, a year and a half. In the case of Niche Down, uh, about six months. But regardless of the time, it's a big chunk of time. And mm-hmm. it's something you get deeply focused and committed on. And the whole time you're doing it, you just think, 
Well, I hope at least one fucking person reads this shit and thinks it's not garbage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's like whenever I go do book signings today, you know, most of the time when I go to a book signing, they budget, you know, anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending on what the event is, right? Mm-hmm. And I have done four-hour book signings. Wow. Because I'm not leaving until the last person who wants me to sign one of those fucking books gets that book signed. Mm-hmm. Because I I prayed for this day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I prayed for the day that Holly said, I read your book and it helped, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's why I did it was in the hopes that one day Holly might feel that way. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like uh, somebody else told me that, too, that they sign every every person who's waiting. Just wait for the whole thing, you know, however long it takes. I mean, unless there's some effing reason I got to go that I don't have any control over. But, like, I am going to sit there and I'm going to sign every flipping book. And I, I don't even it's not even it's not work. It's not a chore. I don't it's, no, it's 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 a joy. Yeah. You know, people want to take selfies with you and shit. It's like, well, OK. <laughs> All right, I take a selfie. Like I, yeah. I you know, says, oh, you know, can you fill this out for my mom or my colleague or can you, whatever it is, it, that's an a, that's a mind blowing thing to have that happen in one's life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, listening. You know, I got to- an email this morning. Yeah. From a young marketer in Brazil. Oh wow! At the beginning of his career, and he says in the email. Christopher, I've read both your books, and I'm pretty sure I've listened to every one of your podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to tell me how much he appreciates it, and then he is asking for some career advice. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like that's incredible. Yeah. 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 We live in an amazing world too, with the connectivity and the the accessibility that that people can reach out to you from Brazil and and have experienced that and, and get to you. Um, yeah, I yeah. just got hit up by a guy. Um, uh, his name's Matt Brown. He has a very popular entrepreneur business podcast in, I know he's in Africa. I'm pretty sure it's South Africa. I might be wrong. So, but it's definitely in Africa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I checked him out and he's a big damn deal over there. And he, he, you know, similar thing, read your shit, love it, love your podcast, you know, it's just like, hey, man, making a difference in Brazil and in Africa and 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 wherever, right? It's mm-hmm. yeah, we live in a miracle of a time. Yeah, that is amazing. I'm I'm so happy for you and um, you know, everybody who who gets to do that because I think we well, need you get to do those. it too. I I totally am thrilled with what I'm doing. It's fantastic, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I loved the episode with Eddie. Uh, you and Eddie talking about, you know, your personal IPO and, um, you know, what you can, uh, what you can create for yourself. I don't follow the, the, uh, prescribed thing. I'm just, what, what kind of life do I want and how do I make that work? Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I listen to you guys and I'm like, yes, these are my people. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> like the more of that I can put out there, you know, the more people whose questions I can answer. And for me, I, I have um, two, two young kids, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And so I'm also really passionate about talking about it for moms and, and parents who are in the phase where, you know, their kids are at home. Um, and I appreciated that Eddie talked about that and, you know, it's with the parenting, it's, it's not like you can plan. I'm going to have this beautiful moment on Saturday. It's just, it's going right. to happen when it happens. And if you're there, you're more likely to be there for it, you know? 
Well, and look, you're sort of inviting me maybe to stand on the soapbox, so I'm going to stand on it. <laughs> if, if niching down and, um, you know, being a solopreneur and doing a personal IPO and being able to realize the value of, um, you know, what, what we called in that HBR article, Eddie and I, the emotional business case for going solo. Mm-hmm. If those things make a difference to parents uh, and to single parents, mm-hmm. I'm a product of a single mother. Yeah. You know, I, I want to see single parents, moms and dads or, or parents together. I don't give a shit. But like if you're somebody who has children, uh, maybe younger children like you do, Holly, and you're trying to figure out a, a, an alternative to the corporate world, one where you have more control and where you can do more of the things that you love and, and you can you can do uh, life and career design as one, which is how you should do it because we only have one life. Right. right. Yes. This business of work-life balance is such bullshit because, like, what are you talking about? There's life. And yep. then there's what do you want to do with your life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not work-life balance. Yep. Right? Uh, anyway, uh, I think it's a completely broken paradigm because it suggests there's work over here and life. No, there's just life. And sometimes you're working and sometimes you're not working. And, oh, by the way, if you get work really right, you need a new word for it. Everything I do today mm-hmm. is not anything that accurately sits inside a container called work. Yeah. So I don't know what to call it, but it ain't work in any way that most people would think of it. But anyway, I, I digress a little. My point is if, if my life's work of helping people to um, design their own category, helping them to niche down, helping them to follow their different, helping them to understand that it's okay to be unique as long as you can connect that uniqueness to the world in a powerful way. If those kinds of big ideas and the things associated underneath those ideas can make a difference to women like you with young kids who are trying to pioneer their own path, that's exactly the difference that I'm hoping to make in the world, Holly. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you, um, you know, helping to do that because it is, it's a crazy world these days. But I, uh, I, I also believe personally in the power of networks and connectivity for us to put, um, you know, ways out there that work and show them and help other people find them and make it happen for more people. Yeah. And you said a magic word in there, which is networks. Mm hmm. Uh, and Eddie and I talked about this on that recent episode. Um, my buddy, Mike Maples Jr., who's one of the smartest people I know, essentially says the corporation as we understand it is done. Mm-hmm. It's a construct from uh, plus or minus the Industrial Revolution is really where, really where the idea takes off. And he thinks this command and control business is, is pretty much over. And what the corporation of the future looks like is a network. Yeah. And, you know. I think that's absolutely right. And the beauty of being uh, a solopreneur or as my buddy Chris Ducker calls it, a youpreneur, right, mm-hmm. uh, is you, cre- you know, and Eddie said it on our, on our, our, our podcast. He said, oh, when, when I went out on my own, people said to me, oh, it's, you're going to be so lonely. Mm-hmm. Said, I'm not lonely at all. I got people. The, the difference is I only have the people around me that I want to have around me, right? And as it, yeah. I guess my point in all this is as an independent solopreneur, you, 
you create your own ecosystem where you're the sun and everyone else is, you know, planets and moons and shit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but you also get to be the planet and moon and shit in other people's ecosystems, right? Yep. And so, so if I take Eddie and I as an example, there's nobody forcing Eddie and I to write articles together. There's yep. nobody forcing Eddie and I to, you know, work on any kind of company together. Like we're, we're currently working on one together. There's nobody forcing us to do podcast or any of these things, right? Why mm-hmm. do we do it? Cause we like each other. Yep. We're like mine with similar skills, but we, we bring different things. So we're both, we have areas in which we're, we're very similar. And then we have areas that we don't overlap. And so, you know, that is uh, an incredibly powerful thing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no, you know, Eddie's boss is not telling Eddie to work with Christopher and my boss is not telling me to work with Eddie, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so yeah. that's the power of these um these these sort of uh self-governing, self-forming networks. Mm-hmm. And whether they're companies or solopreneurs or a mix, you know, whatever it is, if you go back to to Mike, Mike Maples, that's what he thinks the future is and what the technology mm-hmm. allows us to do is to each be hubs and spokes of each other's networks and come together, work on shit together, produce some outcomes and results, disband, come back together in a different form later, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's an incredibly exciting thing to be part of. It's like if everything you work on is sort of like the way Hollywood does a movie or the way the music mm-hmm. business does a record where, you know, oh, well, we need a saxophone on this tune. Okay, well, I got an unbelievable guy on saxophone. And, you know, we need something different on the drums here. Well, I know this gal who's really good at that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you create this, um, this hybrid, this uh, hybrid's not the right word, this collage of people that come together to do something legendary. Mm-hmm. It's very cool as a solopreneur to be able to be, uh, the creator or author of those things. And for me personally, um, I'm often today not the creator of uh, or author of those things. I am um, a node in somebody else's network. And I find that very, very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think you, you and, and me and, and other people like this, um, you know, we're, we're optimizing for where we can have impact. So for, um, you know, the work we do is work that we're good at, that we're excited about, that we can, you know, make a contribution on. And, uh, you know, sadly, that's not always the case when you're in a corporate environment. But, um, you know, hopefully this way, we drive good change for for more. Yeah, and maybe do work that, um, you know, this is going to sound like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but makes your heart sing a little more, right? <laughs> we, uh. The yes. truth is we, we self-actualize through work. Not mm-hmm. that we don't self-actualize through other things as well, but look, work is a huge part of people's lives. You know, um, we had Magdalena Yessel on my podcast. She's the original founding uh, investor in Salesforce.com. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about her mom and how uh, after all the, ki- the kids left and all that, her mom got a job as a barista. Mm-hmm. And the joy her mom had by being known as like the greatest barista in their town. And, every, you know, everybody who came into that coffee shop knows her by name. And when she walks down the street, she bumps into customers and and everybody loves her. And 
and the pride she has from making people, you know, cappuccinos and shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and here's a woman who, you know, was a, uh, is a wife and a mother and done all that stuff, but she never had that sort of work self-actualization and what a big difference it, it, it has been making to her in her later years. So my point is everybody has that need, right? Mm -hmm. And I think your life is different. Let me say it that way. Your life is meaningfully different. Your relationship with yourself is meaningfully different when you achieve a level of success in mastery and are generally respected and admired for your work, whether you're a barista or whether you're Elon Musk, it doesn't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. We all have that um, uh, primordial human need to gain some mastery, to feel like we're making a contribution and a difference and to be recognized and acknowledged by whether it's our peers or our customers or, or uh, as being somebody of value in, in, in our chosen field. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that we're able to you know, reach a place where modern technology makes that easier for people instead of them being scared about you know, losing the, the paycheck that came with the job that didn't give them that satisfaction. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, as we talked about in the HBR article and in the podcast episode that sits with it, um, it's not always true, of course, and I don't want to, you know, have rose-colored glasses. And I look, it's a very scary thing to go from a paycheck to how the fuck are we going to make the mortgage? It's, it's a very real thing. Um, and as Eddie said, you know, there's real joy on the other side of fear. And mm -hmm. what the data suggests is that at least amongst executives, that most executives make equal if not more when they do this. Yeah, absolutely. So more. And look, here's the other thing. Oh. There's no security. Come on. What do you Yeah. Look, yeah. look, when I was a kid, what was security? Go get a good government job, a good mm -hmm. union government job. Okay. Well, I, and look, I don't know if you want to get political or not. We don't necessarily have to get political, but regardless <laughs> of your political beliefs, we have 800,000 people in our country that have, quote, good government jobs. I don't know what percentage of them are unionized, but they're good government jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they supposedly. Fucking, they're not fucking getting paid. Yeah. It's a, they're, it's, they're in food lines. It's, we have TSA agents in food lines. Yeah. No, it's crazy. We have it, air traffic it, controllers that can't feed their families. Yeah. Right. And so, so look, there is no security period. And what I love about, look, you don't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur or a solopreneur, but what I do think you have to do is it's, it's a headset. It's a mindset that I am responsible for my life. Mm -hmm. I am responsible for my job, my career, my income, and my, my self-actualization and self-expression through my work. And uh, I think that's a good headset to have. And if we outsource that to our employer, um, we're in trouble because you just never know um, when someone's going to move the cheese. That's right. That's absolutely right. Ah, heavy stuff, but I'm super excited to talk with you about it. So I don't know about you, but I actually uh, probably need to wrap up. So I always love to ask people um, if they have one final piece of advice 
for um, like new startup founders. I'm sure you talk to a share of people who are saying, gosh, I want to I want to achieve this greatness that, you know, these companies you were at did. What would you tell them? So the first thing I would say is it's the people who are different that make the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. What is the difference that you have or can create that's going to make a difference, particularly in the domain of solving a giant problem in a completely unique way? And that fundamentally is category design. That fundamentally is what niching down is about. So, so different, not better and, and get focused on what's the difference that you have. That's going to make the difference. That's going to position you proactively as unique and, and, and it's going to have you stand out in a way that um, it's going to be virtually impossible to compete with you. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. The reward is that you do it. So we're so goal oriented in our world, Holly. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks it's about getting to some place. Yep. Now, look, there are some places that are worth getting to. <laughs> and if you have some of those places, then go get after it. You know, so for me, financial freedom was a place to get to. And my definition of financial freedom was not having to work again and being able to have the lifestyle that I want for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I got to that place at a fairly young age. And that's an incredible thing. And that's an achievement and you should be proud of it. And it, you know, if, or, or whatever goal along those lines you may have for yourself and or your business. Mm-hmm. But what I'm here to tell you is uh, as awesome as that shit is, and it is, you know, we had Andre Iguodala, who is the MVP of the uh, finals, uh, the NBA finals for the, um, the legendary Golden State Warriors on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And he said something really interesting. He admitted that the second and third championships don't feel anywhere near like what the first championship feels like. Mm-hmm. And the aha in that is, and it's something that particularly as a player who's getting a little bit towards the end of his career, when we talk about this, the, his reward particularly having already won now three championships. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's three. But anyway, it's, it's, it's a fair number. Um, mm-hmm. His reward is that he gets to play basketball and he gets to play basketball with those guys. Mm-hmm. And, and then that they get to win, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess my point to get back to your question is the reward is the journey. The reward is the struggle. The reward is that you get to play. And so pick the game you want to play very carefully. Mm -hmm. And let me say it even more specifically. Start or join a company worthy of your talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third thing I'd say is there's going to be a massive amount of losery along the way. Losery being a word we invented to make failure sound more fun than it actually is. It's going to be massive, massive losery. It's going to fucking suck. It's going to suck bad. It's going to suck like physical pain in your body, like wanting to cry. like can't even believe it. Like, why am I doing this? Um, you know, Ben Horowitz, the entrepreneur turned venture capitalist who wrote the hard thing about hard things. He's got a great quote and I'll, I'll paraphrase. He says, we know when I was a startup CEO, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours screaming, looking for my mommy. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> right. And so, so there's gonna be that you will feel like a failure. You will feel like, like a sack of shit on the floor and nobody can put your Humpty Dumpty back together. That's going to happen. And it's going to happen many, many times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to bring it back to Eddie, you know, Eddie says, are you a missionary or a mercenary? Mm-hmm. Right. Because missionaries, if you're a missionary and you're primarily motivated by money, that missionaries are going to tap out. Mercenary, excuse me. Mercenaries are going to tap out. Yep. Missionaries will walk through flaming glass to make it happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say pick or start a company worthy of your talent that you can get fired up about the, the mission behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you do that, um, then, then, you know, those, those moments of losery were, are going to hurt. Um, but you're going to continue, you know, I had to start all over, uh, two years ago as a podcaster from, from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's, it's weird when you've achieved a certain level of success in one domain and you move into another, in my case, writing and podcasting, and you go from being, you know, at least in my case, known in your niche and you know, a little bit respected and whatever, right? Like I'd achieved some shit mm-hmm. and then you start at the bottom and you're a nobody, right? It's very humbling and it's, and, and people treat you like shit and success doesn't come anywhere near as fast as you want it to. And there's lots of reasons to quit. And so, you know, at any point where I said, okay, well, fuck it. I'm not writing another book or I'm, or I'm, or I'm not writing the first book because this is too hard or mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you know, the podcast is pissing me off or whatever. I just go, okay, so great. So stop podcasting Lockhead or stop writing. Mm-hmm. Then what are you going to do? And the reality for me, and I think this is the reality for most of us entrepreneurs is you can't not do the thing. Yeah. Because you're pulled to it. You're drawn to it. You, you, whether you almost, it's almost like um, the mission has you by the throat, whether you want to do it or not. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, you know, I just think these are some of the dynamics that you're going to face on this path and being uh, wide eyed and open eyed about them in the beginning is really important and maybe take some of the heat out of it. And, you know, God, if I could only, my younger self could only know to just, just fucking enjoy the ride a little bit more. Cause it's actually about having a great ride and, and uh, that's really what it's about and, and the people that you meet along the way. Yeah. But it's so hard when you're in those moments, right. To step back and say, Hey, I should just be enjoying this ride. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and love the losery. <laughs> yep. Um, have you had, um, have you had moments? I mean, you mentioned like, uh, you know, moments where you thought, okay, the podcast is annoying me or whatever, but like, what, what is that? What does that look like? And how did you get yourself back to doing the next thing? So I, I think, I think any of these things are simple, which is get back to why you started it in the first place. What's your real mission? What are you up to? Why does this matter to you, right? And so if you can get centered back on the why, if you can get centered back on the mission, if you could get centered back on your true north for why you started whatever it is you started in the beginning, right? So in my case, and look, I know it sounds corny, but it's true. In my case, it was that uh, magical combination of uh, wanting to give back and make a difference and thinking that writing and podcasting were the primary ways and that made sense to me mm-hmm. because I'm somebody that wouldn't exist if 
David Ogilvy didn't write Ogilvy on advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the first part, you know, wa- wanting to make a difference and choosing these vehicles, in my case, writing and podcasting as the primary vehicles to do that. I, I still do a little bit of advising and investing, but, but those things don't scale, right? So I can mm-hmm. only work with a few companies, podcasting and writing can scale. Um, and, and so I, it just gets, it's just gets back to that. It's like, okay, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Why are you really doing this? And, and, uh, when you can get focused on your mission, uh, and your purpose or your why or however, whatever words you want to associate with it, then tolerating the bullshit of the how and the losery along the way becomes a lot easier. Yep. I've definitely experienced that as well. So, yeah, I think yeah. we all do. Yep. We do. And then there's times when I forget that or get far from it or think it's crazy and then it maybe takes me a little longer to get back up. But uh, eventually I get back up and I'm like, okay, this is the mission. This is why we're doing it. The other thing is, you know, time's on, time's on all of our sides. So I think having some perspective on, on, on this really, really helps. So if you look at yourself, I guarantee you, Holly, there are things, there are results that you are super stoked about that happened in your life and your business today that a year ago, six months ago, two years ago, three years ago seemed very difficult, if maybe even impossible. And, and now there may be some work, but they're, they're, they're not that hard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so that's the other sort of perspective that we need to have, you know, tonight by way of example, I'm going to go have dinner with the head of marketing and the founder CEO of one of the highest profile uh, tech startups of the last decade in Silicon Valley, backed by one of the top venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a nonchalant and the guy, you know, the founder CEO guy's a billionaire and like, you know, mm-hmm. and he's been on magazine covers and da, 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 right. And for me today, that's not a big deal. I mean, I'm very much looking forward to the meeting. A very yep. interesting set of people. Maybe we'll work together. Maybe we won't. Um, so I, I don't want to be uh, flippant about it. But at the same time, that's not an unusual discussion for me to have. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had said to me at 18 or 25, hey, um, some of the top folks in the tech industry are going to seek you out and they're going to read your books and they're going to want to have dinner with you and they're going to want to ask for advice and maybe they're going to want to engage you or have you join their board or whatever the fuck it is they're going to want to do. And, and, and this was going to be relatively easy. You're just going to get this email and you're going to, this, this billionaire was going to say, Hey, over the Christmas holiday, I read your book and I thought it was really awesome. And I think you could really help us. And I, you know, know some people who know you and da 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 da. And can we have dinner to talk about all this shit? If you had told the 25-year-old me or the 18-year-old me that that shit would happen in my life on a regular basis, I, I, you know, I would have been dancing cartwheels and I, I'm like, really? Is that really yeah. good? You know, that, that, so tonight is a great example of that. that the thing I'm going to do tonight is a dream come true for the 18-year-old me. Yep. And, and today I'm nonchalant about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
my point is, if you do enough of the right stuff for long enough, then you can produce breakthroughs. They just don't feel as, as dramatic as they might because they happen over time. Right. I'm not yep. surprised today that that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you, Cause you, I'm, I'm, I, I fucking did the work to get there. It's not. Yes. <laughs> right? yep. Like I, yep. I belong in the goddamn room. Yep. Right. Yeah. And so I don't go like, Oh my God, I'm so, I gotta eat this billionaire. No, it's not the first fucking billionaire I've hung out with far from it. Mm-hmm. Right. But the 18 year old version of me would have been shitting both scared mm-hmm. and happy and all that stuff. And I'm going to go have a, you know, an interesting dinner. Mm-hmm. And so my point is we can, we can traverse extraordinarily challenging terrain and, 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 and achieve levels of success far beyond what we thought was possible if we apply ourselves over time. Yeah. Yeah. What is the saying? Uh, we, we overestimate what we can get done in a short period, but we underestimate what we can get achieve in a longer period. So yeah, we, yeah. We think you know, t- ten years from now, what could I be doing? And ten years is a long time away. So, right. And so when I if I get pissed off about something on my podcast or my books or whatever, I go, okay, well, you've been at it for two years, you dumbass. What's it <laughs> gonna be like when you've been doing this for ten years? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know, but one thing's for sure, you're gonna be meaningfully better at it. Yes. One <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. No, that's exactly right. Um, that's actually, uh, yeah, that's good to hear too, because like I said, I'm two years into my business. And so I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you know, if you get, if you get several years out, then these, some of the things that seem, seem crazy right now, they'll, they'll, I'll have learned from all of them. Yeah. And you will get much further. You, you, you won't get anywhere near where you think you can get in two years mm-hmm. and you will get meaningfully further if not to places you could never dream in a decade yep and so i try to center myself holly on hey what's the most legendary thing i could do today Mm. if i was legendary and it was today what would i do well i know for sure it's today (laughs) right Uh uh-huh And so if I do what I think a legendary person in my position could or should do today, then 10 years from now will take care of itself, won't it? Yes. You know, and I don't know if you've heard this expression. I I love it. Um, You know, what will future you thank present you for? Oh, yes. That's a good one. Yeah, I love that one. But it leads me to another one in my life, which is, man, you know, so I'm 50. There's a lot of shit that 50-year-old me is really grateful and thankful that 25-year-old me got busy on. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to really take 25-year-old me out for a beer and go, hey, dude, thanks for busting your balls because 50-year-old <laughs> me is having a great time and we never would have been here unless you did all that shit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time, Christopher, and for your wisdom and insights and, uh, and lovely, wonderful energy. I uh, can't wait to listen to more podcasts and more content and just you know, see where things go and what, uh, how many people follow your wisdom. 
or follow your well, thank you holly i i super appreciate you having me on uh, your podcast and uh, i love the work that you're doing we need more entrepreneurs uh, we need more solopreneurs we need more female entrepreneurs and uh and so bless you thanks so much christopher and have a great dinner All right. I hope you liked that episode as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. If you'd like to find Christopher online, you can find him on Twitter at Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D, or you can visit his website, Lockhead.com, where you can find out about his podcast, Follow Your Different, or follow his blog, or find out about different media appearances and things he's been up to. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high-growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.